Welcome to the PokePress Digest Podcast, a Pokemon news magazine show. Here you'll find some of the best content offered by our site. For more, visit us at pokepress.blogspot.com. This installment has two segments. The first is a pair of interviews from Worlds 2017. One is with the winner of a Seniors TCG event, and the other is with the Masters Division runner-up of the Sun and Moon video game competition. The second segment is a discussion of the ending themes of Destiny Deoxys. Anne from PG Podcast helps me compare the enigmatic Tommy February 6 to the possible X-Files fan Bree Sharp, and we decide which song better fits the movie. Thanks. Hi, I'm Steven Reich, here at the Anaheim Convention Center in Anaheim, California, at the Pokemon World Championships 2017. I'm here with Zachary... Bokery, who is the winner of the TCG event in the Seniors Division. And Zachary, we just have a few questions. Uh, first off, where are you from, and how'd you get into Pokemon? I'm a player from New Jersey, and I've been playing for 10 years now. My family has been pretty active in the community uh, for the past 10 years, and my brother is really the main person who helped me get into the game since he was collecting in his childhood, and uh, he pushed me to play when I was young. So you had an older brother. Great. Always like to hear those stories. All right. So for this year's tournament, you decided to play Ninetales GX with uh, a couple other things that we'll talk about. First of all, it's a relatively new deck. What, how would you summarize the basic strategy of the Ninetales GX deck? Well, uh, in some matchups, you might want to spread early with like a Tapu Koko or even an Ice Blade Attack to put 50 on people. But uh, most of the time, it's a pretty aggressive deck with its second attack, hitting for big numbers, and uh, being able to repower up the deck with Aqua Patches. Yeah, those are some of the key cards. Now, one we didn't see during the finals was a Pseudo Wudo you have in your deck as sort of a one-off. Uh, what's that one for? Mainly for Rayquaza or maybe a Rainbow Road, but um, it also helps in against a lot of other matchups too, like... Um, Drample Garb likes to fill their bench. Any deck that bridges turn one has to fill their bench a lot, and then you take away their last bench spot, which could be used for a topple lily later in the game. And also Decidueye likes to fill their bench. A lot of other decks in general. And uh, what made you choose it for this particular tournament? Were you expecting a certain uh, metagame, or...? Um, yeah, I expected a lot of Drample Garb, Espeon Garb, and Decidueye decks, um, along with some Greninja. That's why I threw a Garatina promo in the deck. Um, so yeah, that, I expected that meta field to be there. Some Gardevoir as well. When uh, The matchup between with Gardevoir is pretty 50-50. I ended up beating one in top four, though, 2-0. But otherwise, I think the matchup is pretty 50-50. So I was hoping maybe I'll just hit one of them and I'll be able to maybe squeak out a win. But I expected mostly Garbodors and Greninjas and Deciduous. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that promo Giratina was very important in the finals. Uh, you were, in fact, paired against a Greninja deck. Uh, you won the match 2-1, so uh, very good there. Uh, the part that got kind of interesting was that second game. You were faced with a very difficult choice on your first turn. You had a hand with uh, a Sycamore and three versus Seekers, and you decided to discard it. Uh, what was going through your head? What was sort of the, the calculus going on there? Yeah, so I only play three V Seeker in my deck, so that was all my V Seekers. Uh, and two Rough Seeds as well, a double colorless and a Nine Tails. And I only played three Nine Tails. One was prized. So I basically if I had one left in deck after I Sycamore. And I wanted to Sycamore because I didn't want him to get too far ahead. I needed to make sure I was able to evolve my Nine Tails and keep up with the game. So I needed to get Volpix down. And uh, I, yeah, I didn't want to fall too far behind with just a Remorade in the active spot. Yeah, and now unfortunately, uh, you did play very aggressively with your hand there, and, and maybe a little too much so, because your opponent was actually able to 
bubble you with his uh, his Froki to to uh, to a deck out, which is very rare. We did see one of those in the Masters Finals as well. Do you think there's a reason we're seeing a bit more of those, or was that sort of just a, an anomaly there, seeing two of those between two of the final matches, you think? Well, decks are getting, starting to, uh, they kind of slowed down when Bridget decks started to get up, uh, like, more popular, but now with, like, Gardevoir and stuff like Lissapod, like you saw in the finals of Masters, like, decks are starting to get more aggressive, and they like to burn through their deck a lot more, and decks having Octillery, that's a lot more burning through your deck, so it, deck outs are more common. That's a good theory. Uh, it certainly would take some deeper analysis to know for sure, but I, I think that's a pretty good theory you've got there. All right, well, in the third game, uh, your opponent um, had some, uh, some two of his... Uh, Frogadier prized. Uh, how did, did did you eventually figure that out? He figured it out when he did a search. Did you did that sort of dawn on you eventually? Uh, yeah, after he did his water duplicates, I was pretty much clear that he did prize his two Frogadier, and uh, I felt pretty confident in the match. I also got my uh, the next turn after that, I was able to kill one of his Frogadiers, leaving him with only one on board. Yeah, that match was uh, very much in your favor, especially since you were able to get Giratina out relatively early there, which is a big stop to that giant water shuriken, which drastically shifts things over. But you still played very well, and at the same time, your opponent, Michael, made you work for it. So, very entertaining final. Loved watching that. All right, well, I guess we got to ask one more thing. You're a world champion now. How does that feel? It definitely feels great. After 10 years, I have previously top four worlds, but not much in the world championships other than that. So it definitely feels good to finally win after 10 years. All right. Well, thank you very much, Zachary. This has been Steven Reich from the Pokemon World Championships 2017 in Anaheim, California. Hi. I'm Steven Reich here at the PokePress Studios in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm on the phone with Sam Pandelis, who is the second place finisher in the Masters Division of the video game competition at this year's World Championships. So, uh, Sam, first of all, where are you from, and how did you get into Pokemon? Uh, hi, Stephen. I'm from Australia. I live in Melbourne, and I first got into Pokemon in around... Well, Pokemon in general, that dates back almost 20 years ago and like when we all played like red and blue and stuff like that competitively i never really knew there was much of a competitive scene for pokemon until about 2011 and that's when i just stumbled across a tournament that was happening at one of the local game stops and i just walked in there and i saw a tournament was going on and i was just curious and then since then i just made friends and never looked back i guess <laughs> Great little uh, backstory there. I had a chance to visit Melbourne, of course, earlier this year when I had a very great opportunity to go to the uh, the internationals there. So for this year's World Championships, you had a you know usual team of six Pokemon. Uh, you chose according to my records: Tapu Lele, Arcanine, Ninetales, Garchomp, Mandibuzz, and Zerkatry. Now a couple of those are are pretty standard choices, but there are a couple of very interesting ones there. Mm-hmm. Maybe not the rarest one, but one of the important ones, Ninetales. Uh, what was that sort of serving on the team? Uh, so Ninetales was there for a few reasons. First, it held the Light Clay, which meant it can extend Aura Veil by three turns, giving it eight in turns instead of five. The thing about the Ninetales, which was really strange, was that it had no special attack investment at all. It was fully defensive. And... So in that sense, all it did was provide a supporting role to the team. It didn't have any offensive pressure at all. Like, the moves were just Icy Wind, Disable, Roar, and Auravel. So the point of Ninetales was just to help your teammates. And it 
didn't do any didn't have any attacking porous at all. Yeah, not really. Now let's see. A second one I want to talk about was Mandibuzz, which is you know the vulture Pokemon uh, that had some interesting utility uh, uses in there. Uh, wh- how did that sort of fit in? Uh, so I chose Mandibuzz on my team to. It was kind of like a meta call at the time because I felt there'd be a lot of metagross at Worlds, and Mandibuzz is very, very good against Metagross. It deals with it very nicely with foul play. It also supports the team with speed control with Tailwind, and you can also taunt things, which um, prevents, like, Celestealers from sending up Leech Seeds and stuff like that. Yeah, Taunt is, you know, very good against anything that is, you know, not a heavy attacker, very defensive Pokemon that tend to have a lot of status moves, always good there. And then you have uh, one Ultra Beast on your team, and that's Zerkatree. Uh What made you choose that one for this tournament? Uh, so basically, Zerkatry, um, and like the whole team in general is a bunch of mid speed tier Pokemon. Like, you have the Adamant Garchomp, the Arcanine, Lele, Zerkatry. So, when you have supporting moves like Icy Wind on the Ninetales and Bulldoze on the Arcanine and Tailwind on the Mandibuzz, you can very often get like Zerkatry into a good speed control, like outspeed your opponent, I guess you could say. And Zerkatry actually has the highest space special attack. In the, out of any Pokemon for this format, and it's just a really, really heavy hitter. And I felt like I needed it to deal with like the outsurge of Cell Stealers and generally just like bulky water types like Tapafini in general. And it was pretty instrumental for dealing with the team. Yeah, yeah, we definitely saw that. Now, you uh, did relatively well throughout the tournament, obviously making it to the finals. Uh, there, you had to face. Uh, Ryota from Japan, he had a team, uh, yep. very well-known player. He had a Crocodile, Whimsicott, Tapu Fini, Marowak, Celestelia, and Tapu Koko. Now, the interesting thing is, if you compare that to your team, your teams have no Pokemon in common, which is pretty rare. Do you think that says more about the two of you as players, or do you think it says something about the Sun and Moon games in this format? Uh, any, any sort of comment there? I think it says a lot about the format in general. I think us as players, like in the past formats, we've used teams that have been pretty similar. Like I know Rear Return 2015 was using Chalk, which was the most standard team of that year. Um, this year was a lot more diverse. And just outside me and Ryota, the top eight of the World Championships this year featured the most unique Pokemon in history compared to any previous year. So more than anything, I would just say the format was diverse and allowed for a lot of different Pokemon to shine. Is there anything in particular you attribute to that? Is there something about the Pokemon introduced in Sun and Moon or or anything like that? I feel like um, nothing too overpowered was legal. And in terms of that, Mega Evolutions were also not legal, which opened a lot more potential for other Pokemon to shine. Because generally in the past formats, there was only two or three Megas that would be considered viable. Um, But without Megas this year, it just gave pretty much every Pokemon that wasn't a Mega a chance to fit in on a team. Hmm. I think that's why the Pokemon were diverse. Okay, well, let's go into the finals itself. So it did go to three games. You came up sort of on the short end there, but let's start with game one. Yep. So you mentioned, you know, Auroraville, and you did set that up very quickly in that game. You really tried to do that in all of the games, pretty much. Um, 
was that basically what you were your your goal then, and you felt that would serve you well against uh, Ryota's team? Yeah, because uh, well, if you looked at team matchup, I really had a pretty bad matchup against Ryota. Like uh, my main hit is like Zerkatri and Garchomp, for example, and he has the Marowak and the Tapafini. So and Cell Stealer and Cell Stealer is really good against Garchomp because Garchomp can't really hit it, for example. So I didn't really have the good matchup on paper, especially because of the Marowak. Because without the Marowak, Zerkatri kind of hits everything pretty nicely. But um, because of that, I felt like I need to have Garchomp on the field as soon as possible, just to set up Sword Stance or get Tectonic Rage onto the Marowak if 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 necessary. But yeah, Aurovale was pretty instrumental. And also the fact he had Brick Break on his Marowak, which is really not a common move at all, just was kind of detrimental to my team. Yeah, we definitely saw that in Game 2. Actually, I think several times in Game 2. I don't know if we saw it in Game 3, but that that was definitely one of the things about Game 2. He was able to just sort of knock out the uh, Aurora Veil uh, on, on Ninetales there and basically, you know, just take you back to regular defense. Now, I noticed in the second game you did try and reset that up and he just brick-broke it again. Uh, what what kind of happened there? Um, by that turn, I, I think I predicted the Marowak to protect. I made a few mistakes so in the game because there was a point where I could have won the second game if I clicked Earthquake but I went for a sword stance instead on my Garchomp. Mm. Uh, if I'd clicked the Earthquake, I would have won the game. But I got a bit greedy, I guess, and I pred- predicted him to protect or maybe charm with his Whimsicott. And then yeah, he made the read and he got back into the game. Yeah, that's definitely one of the things you can you know strategize around is you don't want to. You can sometimes play too conservatively or too aggressively, and that's always a, a tough decision to make, especially at the top levels. One interesting move that we really didn't see competitively too often uh, before is that uh, during the second game, you were able to use Disable against a Pokemon with a choice item, specifically Tapu Fini on Ryota's side. That's that's That was kind of interesting. How often do you get to do that as a course of normal gameplay, do you think? Uh, I actually use Disable quite a lot in the tournament, which is funnily enough. Basically, the thought process behind Disable is I have three setup Pokemon. I have Tail Glow on Zerkatry, Swords Dance on Garchomp, and Calm Mind on Tapalele. Basically, what Disable does is if you have one of those Pokemon next to you, you can disable a move that's preventing you from setting up from the opponent, and then you can just get like a free Tail Glow or a free Swords Dance off. And I was able to do that quite a lot during the tournament. Yeah, and like I said, uh, not, not enough to get you a victory, but it did work... Uh, you did see it work once in the, uh, in the in game two in the finals. Like I said, it has always been to me such like a um, sort of a joke move, like a proof of concept, but never really useful. But that is kind of interesting that we can finally see it in competitive. Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about the third game. Uh, so, uh, you know, Ryoto was able to fa- force a thir- third game and he did pick this one up. Now, initially, it actually looked like you were doing quite well. You had... Uh, gotten to a point where he had actually was using his z move on on turn one yeah with the uh, the whimsicott prankster which you switched into a dark pokemon which as of the the new games does sort of uh nullify that uh, at that point did you did you think you kind of had it or, or what was your, your your mental state there when you pulled that off i well, i was pretty happy when i put it off because i knew it looks like really good to the crowd and got everyone hyped and excited i didn't think i had it at that point though because basically i was in a bad spot 
when he led Wimsicott again. I predicted him not to lead Wimsicott, and in hindsight, I probably should have brought Tapalele in the back. But I knew that the, when he didn't lead Tapufini, uh, that it was going to come in and he would just go straight for the Garchomp. So I had to switch Mandibuzz in there, but the issue was I had nine tails and Mandibuzz out in the field. doesn't really offer any kind of offensive pressure at all. But then after that, I was able to maneuver into a better position later, but just didn't work out, I guess. <laughs> yeah, you didn't quite make it there. I mean, it was a very memorable finals and, and definitely worth watching. If you haven't seen it already, uh, I would say dig it up on, uh, I think it's probably on the Pokemon Twitch channel, or you can find it on YouTube. It's one of the best worlds just overall in terms of finals matches. I think we got some really good stuff there, and you should definitely be proud of yourself for making it that far. That being said, you know, you mentioned a few things here or there. Anything you would do differently team-wise if you had to do this over again? Uh, team-wise, no. I think my team was fine. Um, but the issue with Game 3 was I... Mostly Game 2 and Game 3, I just got really greedy. And mm. I went for setup moves. Like, I went for Tail Glow in Game 3, and so I could have just Dazzling Gleamed and knocked out the Whimsicott at an earlier stage. Because due to me not doing that, it came down to the very last turn where... I had to protect one of my Pokemon. It was basically a 50-50. If I called it right, I probably would have won. If I called it wrong, I lost. And he called it right, so I lost. Yeah, he, he double uh, moonblasted uh, Zerkatry, uh, guessing that you were going to protect your uh, your Garchomp there, and that led him to seal the deal there, unfortunately. That's right. All the same, great job. Uh, we are just uh, right now starting a new season of competition. There are some things coming up. Uh, what are you looking forward to in the next game season? Uh, Ultra Sun and Ultra Moon don't come out till November, so we don't really know what's going to happen there since the, the first Internationals is still going to be using the original Sun and Moon. Uh, yeah. What are uh, you looking forward to this season, though? Well, uh, I'll be in attendance at London, so I'll have to be playing VGC 17 again. Not, I wouldn't be running the same team because everyone knows what it does, so I'm still team building for what I could use there. In terms of Ultra Sun and Ultra Moon, though, which I believe the new format will start on December 1st. I'm hoping we get Megas allowed again, just because I think it's be a bit different to what we had this year. I'm kind of worried that Landorus will kind of like surge and take over the format. Mm. So if we had Megas, I might think it might even be a bit more diverse than without Megas, just to the, all, the, all the Pokemon being available. Yeah, it, it is always that balancing act. Sometimes adding a larger pool actually constricts things more if you're not careful. So we'll we'll see what happens once the new games become legal late this year or early next. Mm-hmm. All right, well, you know, you do some uh, social media-type activities. Uh, why don't you talk a little bit about those? You've got a Twitter, uh, right? Yeah, I have a Twitter that... Essentially, the whole Pokemon VGC community resides on Twitter. So if anyone's looking to get into the scene for VGC, definitely check out Twitter. You got all the world champions have Twitter. Uh, my one, Zelda VGC. Um, you got the previous world champion, Wolf Glick. You got the world champion before that. You got the three-time world champion, Ray Rizzo. All frequently update and post updates on Twitter. And they're very friendly, so everyone talks to everyone on the community. So I recommend anyone looking to get into the scene to just follow people on Twitter. Have a chat. All right. Yeah, that's one thing I'll definitely give the Pokemon on. I'm really on both sides is that uh, TCG and VGC is that they have some of the nicest, best people you'll ever have the pleasure of meeting. All right. Well, thank you very much, Sam. Been great having you on. No worries. Thanks for having me. 
This has been Stephen Reich from the Poké Press Studios in Madison, Wisconsin, on the phone with Sam from Australia, the runner-up in the Masters VTC at this year's World Championships. Hi, I'm Stephen Reich here at the Poké Press Studios in Madison, Wisconsin. I am on the phone with Anne from Poké Podcast. And this is the next in our series of discussions comparing the English and Japanese ending themes of the Pokemon movies. This time we're covering Movie 7, Destiny Deoxys, which is a little little different than the previous movies in certain ways. But uh, as far as the Japanese side, the ending song is Lovely Boy by Tommy February 6th. And then the English side, we have This Side of Paradise by Bree Sharp. I think we're going to have some interesting people to talk about in this one, as well as some interesting, very divergent songs. But uh, as we start on the Japanese side, Anne, what can you tell us about Tommy February 6th? Okay, Tommy February 6th. Uh, her real name is Kawase Tomoko, um, and she wrote the lyrics. Um, and the music and production was done by Malibu Converter, Malibu Convertible and Death Star Records, who she was with at the time, uh, which eventually became part of Sony Music. But they're not important she is the interesting story today. <laughs> uh, her nickname is Tommy, and she was the lead vocalist for a band called The Brilliant Green, uh, which is sort of a pop rock band, sort of a Western rock feel. And her professional name with them was Kawase Tomoko, and still is, even though she's changed it to Okuda Tomoko now, because she married the bassist uh, back in 2003. And she did a lot of work with the Brilliant Green, but also had a few little solo projects on the side. So when they went on a hiatus, she like just went full on into that. She started with Tommy February 6th, which February 6th is her birthday, uh, if you were wondering about that. Uh, and she wanted to do kind of more synth pop with that and like kind of created a, a character of Tommy February who looked really cute but wasn't actually like on the inside it, it's sort of a kind of a weird and awkward juxtaposition and maybe she's repressing some darkness like it's the sort of image that inspired like Caddy Pamu Pamu and like a lot of young idols and I think Charlie XEX uh has listed her as an inspiration as well that kind of really cute image and cute production and upbeat cute girly songs, but that's not necessarily the visual image that you're getting from this person. And then with Tommy February, she also released under a different solo name, Tommy Heavenly Six, which is like pure alternative rock and kind of just all her songs that didn't fit the image of the Tommy February character. It's She's said in interviews, it's like Tommy Heavenly Six is Tommy February Six Dark Side. And you could even call it satire on modern culture. Some of her videos that that just kind of she's really into fashion to a point where it almost becomes parody. And she also created a, another identity, a group called the Tommy Angels, but they only released one single. But she released under both Tommy February Six and Tommy Heavenly Six for quite some time, and then. Around 2007, she slowed down a bit because Brilliant Green came off their hiatus, the band. So then she just went on all three identities and is still active in the music scene today. 
She's not as prolific as she once was because she's kind of managing three artistic directions. Like the band used to put out an album every year. Now it's more like every four years. And Tomoko's last EP was in 2015 with Tommy's Halloween Fairy Tale. But she's not exactly absent from the music scene, even if she's not releasing as frequently. She's also taken on some producing jobs. So she she's just done a lot of things. She's somebody who decided she wanted to work and made that work happen. Yeah, having that sort of alter ego side to it is makes her an interesting character, I suppose. I don't want to judge her too much. But um it sort of compares to certain I, I suppose I'm I'm thinking for some reason of share, but maybe that's not the right example in the English music scene. But there is yeah. a certain in terms of having a somewhat different personality, depending on the circumstances, it, it kind of feels maybe like that a little bit. Obviously, it's still very different, being from a different country and all that, but that just was what sprung to mind, to be honest. Yeah, like I've, th- I've thought of a lot of groups in the past that I've followed who kind of have a stage persona and then like not a stage persona. That is something that is kind of fading away with the internet generation um, of performers, I would say, that they're more the same in both. Do you have any idea how this song got attached to this movie? Um, I think it's kind of in that same vein of like, she was approached by the Pokemon company to do a tie-in song. I would say, based on the lyrics, it sounds like she was very cognizant of the theme of the movie, of movie seven and what they were going for. Or at least she incorporated it more so than some of the previous artists we've talked about. Like her song lyrically actually ties in surprisingly well to the themes of the movie, which which you kind of wouldn't get from the first listen. But we've talked about how some of the other artists who have been outsourced to do the tie-in song for the movie score don't always seem to have have a real connection, a strong connection to the events of the movie. Yeah, I read through a translation, and we'll get to the lyrics in a little bit, but there are some connections, at least from what I saw. But uh, for now, let's go back to the English side, this side of Paradise. It is performed by Bree Sharp, and she also co-wrote it with John Siegler. Uh, John Siegler uh, has worked on many Pokemon songs over the years, and we'll be talking a lot about him in the uh, the next episode for Movie 8, because he does that ending theme. But... um as far as Brie herself, um, she's had kind of an interesting career. Now, it was a little hard for me to figure out what the chronology of everything is. She has a website. I dug through there and found some things, including it does mention her work on Destiny Deoxys. Um, but she's done voiceover work. She's done a little bit of acting. She's done music, of course. As far as her, like, mainstream musical work, she's probably best known for a song called David Duchovny, which... I guess means she must be a pretty big fan of the X-Files. There are a number of them out there, of course. But um, I've never actually, to be honest, listened to that song, so I don't know exactly what it revolves around. Um, we can take a guess. Yeah, I, like, I don't know if it's the show or just the actor in general. I should I should really, I should really have bothered to listen to that, I suppose. Oh, well. But in any case, she's done... Uh, some other musical work. Uh, she did a number of songs for the, I guess, the dub of Mew Mew Power. She did a couple songs there. Uh, did some voice acting. She's done voiceover work for a number of commercials. I think we found uh, ones for Revlon and Oil of Olay and like Holiday Inn. 
University of Phoenix. So, done a lot of voiceover work in commercials, which may explain how she got involved in this project because uh, the the Pokemon, uh, you know, John Leffler and uh, some of the, his associates were well uh, involved in the commercial uh, advertising space voiceover work. And so that may be where they ran into each other one way or another. By the way, this song used to be available commercially. Um, It was part of a big collection of four kids songs where there were like three songs per track that were released back in like, I think, early 2005, not long after this movie. Uh, Sadly, they are yet another victim of the 2009 iTunes DRM purge. But I did kind of want to mention that, so... At one point, it was possible to get this song outside of this context, but uh, now you kind of just got to watch the movie and listen to it. Based on the people involved, I have to assume this was written at least partially for this movie, um, but I don't have any too much solid information on how things came together or anything like that, so I'm afraid I can't offer much more insight than that. So we've discussed what we know about the sort of background of these songs. Let's talk about, first of all, how they sound. So, on the Japanese side, Lovely Boy, it has a very 80s feel, to be quite honest, to it. Uh, which, as I understand, is actually fairly typical for Tommy February's work. Uh, and do you want to go into that? I would say that's accurate, yeah. Like, her work with the Brilliant Green, it, as I mentioned, it's kind of Western rock, and they are heavily inspired by, like, the Beatles and music from the 60s. So... She always has a bit of a vintage quality to all of her songs. And then specifically with her February 6th stuff, um, yeah, she's going for like a synth pop vibe. And she started in like 2000 or no, well, she started with the band in 95. So the 80s would not have been that far behind. And the musical aesthetic from Japan, especially that flavor of sounds would not have been like so out of place for her to draw from. So yeah, I definitely think you're on point with that assessment. Yeah, I, I do like this song, um, but I did kind of want to be honest here for just a second. Maybe it's the drum beats at the beginning, but even though this song came out in Japan in 2004 before YouTube, this song kind of has a certain Rickroll quality to it. It's, <laughs> I kind of like to jokingly refer to it as Japan's answer to the Rickroll. And that's not to say it's a terrible song or anything, but... It is, to me, stylistically one of those songs you can sort of spring on someone as in sort of a similar fashion to Never Gonna Give You Up. You can start that. We can make a, we can make a new trend, a new meme. But, uh, yeah, so the, the instrumentation, like I said, kind of lends itself to that. It's got that, that, that very poppy vibe. What about the lyrics itself? Uh, what is the song? Obviously, there is a lot, quite a bit of English in there interspersed throughout things. But uh, what does the song say as a whole? Well, well, first of all, I'm going to just say I know she was not a character yet, but this is Serena's anthem right here. Basically, the song is a boy always looking at only his dreams and not paying attention to anything else. And there's this girl on the sidelines kind of trying to make a connection with him, trying to get his attention, and kind of that bittersweet feeling of he won't notice me the way I want, but coupled with just being with him and being friends is a connection that makes her happy. And maybe the thing she loves most about him is those distant eyes that are always looking towards his dream. And in the song, I think ultimately she'd rather see 
where that dream leads. She'd rather go with him to that dream than break what they have to be like petulant to get him to look at her right now. Like, at first listen, I wouldn't have thought this had anything to do with the movie. But, you know, in digging through the lyrics and looking through those thoughts of, you know, how being with him and that connection to him, you know, brings her joy, despite the fact that reality is not quite what she wants it to be right now, that she has this this friendship, that ties in perfectly to the theme of the movie, which the director has stated is connections, the connections between humans and Pokemon, Pokemon and Pokemon, and humans and other humans. And this song is explicitly about a relationship between two people that is imperfect, but is precious to her and how she navigates that connection with him. So I was a little surprised. It actually seems to fit kind of well for Ash and Tori and Tori and Deoxys and the two separated Deoxys. Like none of those people are in a, a loving relationship or aspiring to be loving, but they are in... Those are the connections that the movie draws from of not connecting to people, but being able to find a place where you can be happy and enjoy the relationship you do have. Hmm. Yeah, that's definitely something you would not get if you're like me and you really only know, uh, you don't really know much Japanese because the, uh, the, the words are actually in English seem very poppy and, and seems to suggest the song is, to be honest, kind of frivolous. Yeah, it's because of those English lyrics, like, even I think if you do speak Japanese, or or if you're like me, where you're like at a medium level, that took some thinking to try to move things in the order they needed to be so that the sentence made sense. Because obviously, the structure of Japanese grammar is different. So the parts where she's speaking English are then followed by a Japanese phrase. But when you translate it back around, it's so like you had to think about it. But once you did, it was like, oh, there, there's actually some some meaning here. <laughs> Interesting. I may have to read through a translation again to get a little more of it. I, the translation I did, I think, mentioned some. I kind of locked on. There's some mention of like like a shooting star or something like that, which is sort of featured. I mean, that's sort of what the there's a meteorite that that's in the movie, different from the one in the previous movie or, or something like that. Isn't that right? Yeah. And I have to say, kudos to her for using Lame, like the fabric, as a song lyric. Like, I've never heard that before in my life. <laughs> but. And there's also a reference to like a bridge, and there must, there, well, that LaRue City is on an island, so it's more or less, there, there must be bridges there, but you get the idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but it just seems very much like they told her the theme of the movie very early on while she was developing the song. And again, I'm sure they did that for all the um, artists that they contracted out of house, but it, it does seem that either she went with the theme a little bit more aggressively or that this movie has a very solidly defined theme and story concept. So it sounds like you have to dig a little bit and read into things a little bit, but the lyrics do match up with the movie, at least on a certain level. I would think so, yes. Well, if we go back over to the English side, this side of Paradise, it's... I'm not sure exactly, maybe... I don't know if alternative rock is the right thing there, but it's a very acoustic-slash-distortion guitar. I think there's a little bit of each. It's not super... It's not heavy metal or anything like that, but it's got a bit of a, an edge to it. And uh, 
to be honest, I, I guess the lyrics maybe don't have a ton that I can think of to do with the movie, other than there's the mention of the train, which of course is featured throughout the first half of the ending credits sequence, where they're going through the, the tram system, which we should mention that LaRue City is somewhat loosely based on the city of Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. That's a story for another day, but like I said, the the main thing there is the train. Um, and did you kind of notice anything else that goes with the movie? From this side of paradise? Yeah. Um, nothing in specific. It, just kind of that general feeling of being together and making friends. I always felt it worked really well for the one scene it was in, but less the movie as a whole. Yeah, there's, well, basically speaking, if you look through the movie, there's a spot that in the Japanese version, they use an instrumental version of the Japanese ending song. Uh, and uh, in the English version, of course, they use the um, uh, This Side of Paradise. And then the credits, of course, they're similar there. So even though at this point they were using uh, the Japanese scores, for the most part, they do splice, uh, whenever there's the Japanese ending theme and they've replaced it, they will, of course, splice that in there. That's cool. Yeah, so that's a relatively equivalent replacement. Although, when we get to the third part, which will, I guess, be pretty soon here, because I, I really, I'm not sure how much I have to really say about this set of Paradise. I like it, and uh, I'm going to have a certain opinion on it, but I don't know that it doesn't really tie incredibly well movie other than the fact that you know it, it's got about the right beat and vibe to it to be a pokemon song yeah it definitely definitely feels like a pokemon song i do love like you mentioned that kind of distortion guitar because you know overall it feels like a very sort of cute poppy song but it does have a lot of little things like that that just kind of make it stand out and be unique and i like that about it yeah, it's it's got a bit of an edge, but it doesn't have like it's it's obviously not as uh, fully full throated, I guess, as say like a lot of the opening themes. Which, by the way, in this movie, we also do not get an, an opening title sequence with the opening theme for that season, uh, much like in the last movie. Which is a shame because Challenger is an awesome song. <laughs> yeah, I think oh, it's uh, yeah, what was yeah, this one dream again? is, oh, is the, that one is a good one too. Yeah, that, that's kind of a missed opportunity there, but would have been nice, I suppose. Uh, there is a, a version of Challenger on the Japanese score album, but yeah, so we don't get that either. So yeah, I guess I, I really feel like I should have more to say about this side of Paradise, but it strikes me and it 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 appeals to me, but I don't I don't know can't put it into words. You get kind of the same feeling too? I would agree because this side of paradise, I'm going to talk about my illegal activities. I did have like a rip off the internet of it for a while that lived on a playlist. I don't anymore. But like it was on my my Pokemon playlist. Like I loved that song. But like you say, in conjunction to the movie, I'm not entirely sure where it fits. Yeah. Is it possible that this just flat out works as a song? Like this is just happens to be a catchy, really good song, even though it doesn't correlate to the movie super tightly? Oh yeah, no, it's it's a good song, and it's a good song for the Pokemon franchise in specific. Like I say, the song itself has really catchy lyrics and a bouncy pop feel with some instrumentation that you know kind of pushes boundaries a little about what 
you expect, like, you know, it, it, it keeps you a little bit on your toes and, you know, manages to be that littlest bit unique. And yeah, it just, it's fun. Definitely one of my favorite parts about watching this movie, although I think uh, I, I like this movie overall, and I think it has a ton of fans. Uh, there are a lot of people that this is near the top of their, their list of Pokemon movies. But uh, I guess with that out of the way, I guess maybe we got to go to the third part here where we sort of, we've done a little bit of comparison, but these are very different songs, very different styles, very different approaches, it would seem. But I still think I can come up with a decision on which one I like better and why. But, Anne, I think I'll let you go first. What do you, what do you want to say? I, I am, uh, you know what? I'm going to give it to Tommy February 6th and I'm going to say the proper name of this title once because it's a pain in the butt and then we'll default back to Lovely Boy, but L-O-V-E-L-Y, you may meet a lovely boy. Like, that song, I think, is the better choice. Like I said, the lyrics surprisingly fit the the theme of the movie, which I think this is the first Pokemon movie to really go with a concept of an overarching emotional theme and base the movie around that rather than basing it around a plot, which <laughs> that's another discussion to have. But I, I do think the song works better within that theme. And This Side of Paradise is very catchy and a good insert song, but it doesn't necessarily fulfill that for me. Also, I like the song better. That's just kind of where my tastes roll. So, Well, uh, <laughs> to be a bit of a contrarian, as much as I love music from the 80s, I think we, we uh, established that a couple episodes ago, I'm going to go with this side of Paradise. And admittedly, a lot of that is simply because I don't know much Japanese. And really, until I started doing a little bit of research here, I didn't really have a lot of idea what the song on the Japanese side was about. And to be honest, Lovely Boy, to me, is more like a guilty pleasure <laughs> type of song. I mean, we, we didn't even mention that if you have the, the single for Lovely Boy, there's a nearly 10-minute remix version that has, you know, Tommy February 6th, of course, but there's mm. a big intro section. There's, uh, and then Pikachu, Plusel, and Minan come in and help sing some of the stuff. And the, the, the song goes through. And then there's this absolutely crazy, to be honest, <laughs> part near the end of the remix, which is, you know, I hate to say this, but, if someone wanted to sort of present something as the most Japanese pop music thing they could find, that might actually work for it. Oh, my. <laughs> so, although I think I have a better opinion of Lovely Boy, knowing that some of the lyrics are maybe a little better tied in than it would sound to a native English speaker who doesn't know much Japanese, <laughs> but this side of Paradise... Honestly, I really wish that at this point, Pokemon still had enough clout to get songs like this on the radio. I think this would have done, I don't think it would have topped the charts or anything, but I think it would have gotten some decent airplay, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, I, I think they had a little bit, of, especially with digital, I mean, they did put it on that one for kids collection, but it'd be nice if they could have put out a single and maybe gotten some airplay on this, because I think it really kind of deserved that. And I think from a 
music appreciation perspective. And like I said, I do like a lot of Japanese music. This side of paradise feels more like something I can be okay with liking with as opposed to Lovely Boy, which to me feels more like a guilty pleasure type of song, to be honest. Like I said, it has that kind of Rick Roll quality to mm-hmm. it, like someone would be tricked into listening to it as a joke. Um, even though I, I still think it's it's fun to listen to and I enjoy it, it's not something you want that I liked that I can listen to as repeatedly or as, as frequently as this set of Paradise. There's going to be another thing about it. So I like both of these songs, but this side of paradise to me is the one that comes out on top. Uh, just even though it doesn't have a ton of connection to the plot or themes of the movie, I just really like it. And I, I guess maybe, maybe I feel like it should have gotten more uh, love from, you know, a wider audience than the franchise was getting at this point. I think that's fair. Like, yeah, I could definitely see the side of paradise getting, like a like being a hit on like something like Radio Disney or like the Teen Music Awards or something, and you're definitely right. Like you have to be into like Japanese pop idol music to you know be on board with a lot of Tommy the Tommy February side of her work. But I I think that's kind of why they do a lot of these dubs and adaptations. I think is that for that specific reason, like for the fact that people's tastes and cultural sensibilities can sometimes diverge to the point where, you know, you hear a song like like Lovely Boy and you just don't feel what they're going for. And, and I think that's kind of the point of doing an adaptation and, you know, creating a song like This Side of Paradise to try to create that same spirit that you want people to leave the movie with. Yeah, yeah. going to what you said about adaptations, I think this might be... If they were ever going to, we talked about the sixth movie having one of the best candidates for translation and adaptation to English for an ending theme. I think this is no disrespect to Tommy February 6th, but I think this is probably one of the worst possible candidates you could come up with for attempting to localize. I think they would have lost a lot, even, you know, with a very skilled translation team. Um, I think it would not have had the impact. I think it would have come off to, to be honest, to a lot of folks as, you know, what is this? And, and things like that. So. Agreed. I think it's a, I, 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 to be honest, had the ending theme had to serve double duty, if they had known that going in, they would have picked something totally different for the Japanese side, most likely. Yeah, but like again, the Japanese side makes their movies for their own audience, so which is fine. And you know what? It's <laughs> kind of a, I look at it as a little bonus that we get two different songs, even if I don't always like both sides of it. Sometimes I do, and sometimes that's a wonderful thing because we instead of getting one song, uh, we get two that I like. So exactly, yeah, and it's wonderful because like even if you don't especially love, you know, whatever the other song was. It does give you a different perspective on this movie that you, you know, always knew and love. And you don't always get that different perspective from the same people making the same things every time. Sometimes it takes looking at the music from a different country's dub or a different different production team. So we, we had briefly mentioned the score earlier. Like I said, this is another one of the movies where most of the Japanese score gets ported over. I think they added a few things, and of course, any instances of the ending song they would replace for the English version. 
But uh, this is definitely more memorable of a score. I can't quote much of it. If I heard it, I would be, totally be able to tell you. It's maybe not the most singable score to any of the Pokemon movies, but it's definitely memorable. I, I, I think the... I'm pretty sure they have distinct themes for Deoxys and maybe Rayquaza as well. And uh, I, I think that works out. Yeah, I really like the stuff with the Battle Tower. That was dramatic and exciting. That is an interesting scene where, you know, Ash gets, because of the lack of coordination with his, his partner, who was <laughs> borrowing one of his Pokemon, he, uh, he gets, uh, his rear handed to him, but, uh. Yeah, but like that scene where he's like going up the elevator with Tori, like, oh my gosh. Like, it was just, I don't know, good sound throughout that whole scene. Like, you felt kind of like something significant was happening in in this building, like just the spirit of Pokemon competition. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of interesting because oftentimes, you know, because we haven't had those opening sequences, the it, it, we haven't seen a sort of non-final scene battle for a couple movies here because of the way things have worked out. Yeah. So we haven't had that opening battle or whatever that we would see with some of the other movies. Yeah, that's true. This movie opens a little bit on the quieter side, too. And it, it takes a while before they get to the, the big battle introduction. All right. Well, I think that's going to do it for our discussion of Movie 7. Uh, maybe not a ton to say, especially, like I said, I love the, the English ending song, but admittedly, there's not as much to really tie it into the movie, which I think leads to a shorter dis discussion on some of this. But, of course, our next episode will be Movie 8, Lucario and the Mystery of Mew. And uh, Admission, I have not really watched this movie. I know vaguely what it's about. Um, I haven't really watched this or Movie 9. I kind of have had a gap there uh, around the time of the 10th anniversary. I think I was graduating from college and stuff. But in any case, I do know what the ending themes of both versions are. On the Japanese side, we have... Song of Origin or Beginnings. It, it sort of depends which uh, version you're you're uh, you're getting your your song title from. But it's by Puffy Amiyumi, or sometimes it's known as Puffy, um, which I'm sure is a band that actually some of the folks at home, even if they're not very familiar with Japan, will know uh, from doing the theme song to Teen Titans and also having a show of their own very briefly on Cartoon Network. So uh, that'll be, I'll just let you uh, do most of the research for that side, Anne. Happily. Um, and then on the English side, we have John Siegler. I mentioned him earlier in the episode. Of course, he wrote the original Pokemon theme, and he performs We Will Meet Again for the Movie 8 English ending. So definitely looking forward to that. That should be another fun one to discuss. But until then, thank you very much, Anne. Thank you. This has been Stephen Reich. From the Pokey Press Studios in Madison, Wisconsin. On the phone with Anne discussing the ending themes of the Deoxys movie. Thanks for listening to the Pokey Press Digest Podcast. We'd appreciate if you rate or review us on your podcast app of choice. If you'd like to find more of our great content, visit our website at pokeypress.blogspot.com. If you'd like to contact us, send an email to pokeypress at gmail.com or follow at pokeypress on Twitter. Well, if you want more to say, have you watched the music video for Lovely Boy? It, like, 
Oh, it, we should mention that. You're right. I have I didn't haven't seen it recently, but I did see it a long time ago. It sticks in your memory, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, we should mention that in addition to a remix, Lovely Boy has an official music video, and, and it really is a a, a tr- music video produced for it. If you saw it, you'd figure out why pretty quickly. And do you want to go and describe the Lovely Boy music video? Words cannot describe. Uh, this is clearly during some sort of London phase that she's going through, uh, but... Tommy February 6th goes to London and she's with Pikachu. She's got like Pokeballs and Pokeball paraphernalia and the magic of Pikachu makes little like tin soldiers come to life and dance with her. And it's kind of like the opening scene from a musical where the girl is walking down the street singing and the whole town slowly joins into the massive dance number. It's that sort of a feel, and but it's it's Tommy February 6th. So like it's that aesthetic of a really cute girl who's... She's kind of awkward and not fully committing to the over-the-top, overly produced environment around her. So it's kind of got a weird juxtaposition, a kind of odd feel to it, but it's the most adorable thing I've ever seen. And maybe the most crazy. Yeah, I saw it a long time ago, so it's pretty hazy in my memory, but I definitely remember that. And actually... Um, I have uh, the single on CD. It's actually a rental CD. Japan, I think, still has, and it has had a rental CD market, uh, much like we used to rent movies here in America. Um, and they would have dedicated rental CDs for some of that. And it's got like a the Tommy February logo made into sort of a British flag, going back to what you were saying there. So, but yeah, so we'd be remiss if we hadn't mentioned uh, that music video. It's probably out somewhere, I'm sure. We should mention that LaRue City is somewhat loosely based on the city of Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Yes, which is very fitting because this was the last movie to be dubbed into Canadian French. Random trivia. I guess going going forward, they just use the regular French for for that. Well, going or? forward, like I guess the distribution deal changed. It was distributed by Viz Media, so I'm guessing that they just produced it in America and then packaged it in Canada. So there was no, yeah, there was no French language track at all. Ah. At, like period. Um, the series, I think, still dubbed it into Canadian French, and and like still drew their dub from the European French version instead of the American English version, which I thought was really interesting. But The the other significance to Vancouver, I suppose, it's the only location that I know of that has been uh, used for both the basis of a, a city in a Pokemon movie and also the Pokemon World Championships. And uh, I have to say I maybe was, wasn't as impressed by uh, the actual city as it as its depiction in this movie when I went there to cover Worlds a couple years ago. But that's a story for another day. But like I said, the...